0: Welcome to Making a Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I will be talking to you guys about a problem, a thing that I really cannot get my head around no matter how much I try. And you know, so each episode I try to organize the previous day's reading around a particular theme or around a particular set of events. I try to make some sort of through line in it so that I can make a story about it. But today, I'm not going to be organizing it around, you know, what might become in future a lecture or an answer. I am going to be organizing this episode around a problem, an intellectual problem that I have with trying to connect my interests in environmental history and my interests in cultural history. So one of the things that I've learned kind of slowly, maybe a little bit too slowly in grad school, is that history is about making stories of the past. A lot of the stuff that we argue about is we argue about what particular sets of things we pay attention to when we make stories. Because, you know, you can't make a story about absolutely everything. You can't have a book about British history that covers a hundred years that covers every single thing that's potentially important to people. You can't have a lecture class in front of a classroom of like 100 or 200 students and teach them about absolutely every single thing. And so part of the way that historians have, you know, been making their careers and saying new things and doing all those sorts of stuff is that we follow different kinds of lenses, different kinds of approaches that give our story shape. So the old history was political history, and this is a history that sees the important thing about history. History as describing the birth of particular nations. And what's interesting about that are the people who make it the generals, the politicians, the kings, the princes, the battles. And this kind of political history is often that incredibly rich, detailed, almost biographical history where you learn about, you know, the Duke of Wellington's left shoe and how that had this consequential impact on the Battle of Waterloo. But after this had been mined for, you know, a hundred years, people started to get grumpy about it. And there were two big problems with this history that looked at the birth of nations through elites. And the first was the nation and the second was elites. Now, the histories that rose up in response to political history critiqued these two things in different ways. The big development in the 70s was social history, and this was often influenced by Marxism. And the idea was, look, you don't look at elites because it's not this elite kind of political culture that we're interested in. We are interested in the people. We are interested in the workers. We are interested in the well-being of the masses. And for that, they had to look at big aggregate groups and describe what was happening with them. So they poured over census records and baptismal records and all of this numerical data trying to make graphs about how much people ate and what they worked in and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Today, the most dominant lens is called cultural history. And for cultural history, the problem is not, you know, the development of workers in a particular country. Instead, the problem is about the formation of different kinds of identities based on language, ritual, and symbol. The important thing for cultural historians is not that, you know, when peasants get a particular standard of living and modernizing societies, then they get class consciousness and then rise up and make labor parties. No, the important thing for cultural historians is understanding the symbols and languages of politics and society, because that's where change happens. So to look for change, you don't look at the biographies of great men and battles and stuff like that. And you don't look at, you know, carefully curated, you know, uh, tomes of baptismal records like the social historians did. Instead, you look at how people use language and symbols to make sense of their world. And one of the claims of my projects as a historian is that there's a fourth way to look at things, and that we can tell new, interesting, important, and maybe even political revelatory stories by looking at the environment as a causal factor, by looking at what happens to the way that people use objects, and the way that the world is changed through people, and the way that people change the world. Now, there's a couple problems with this. The first is that it's unclear exactly what kind of archives to look at to find the environment. It's unclear where to look. Social historians look at numbers, political historians look at biographies, cultural historians look at discourse. Where do environmental historians look? The other problem is, is that the old environmental history suffered from this thing that's called environmental determinism, which we don't like because in the academy these days, we don't like determinism. Environmental determinism basically says, look, all things being equal, people who live on mountains are less state-like, they're more hardy, they like war more, and people on the plains are more liable to taxation, they're more stately, all this sort of stuff. For environmental determinists, the big idea is that environmental factors are so paramount that they trump everything else. The third big problem with this approach, for me, is that it's hard to connect ideas about what's happening with you know, uh, coal usage and uh, 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 the makeup of the atmosphere with the things that I actually care about, which is how people live their everyday lives. It's really hard to find a mechanism. So, I mean, just look at my podcast to see how I've been trying to skirt this line. I'm interested in things like the formations of clubs and of companies and of capitalism but I want to make the big claim that in the end, that what modernity is, is it's a certain way of using energy. It has something to do with the events of wide geological importance. That in some way, I want to be able to connect a bunch of people in a coffee house talking about science and art and literature with the changes in the atmospheric makeup that are inscribing themselves in rocks that will be preserved for millions and millions of years. And this is a hard story to make, and in some ways what this whole podcast is about is me trying on different hats to see if I can make this story in a convincing way. When asked about it by my examiners, I right now just kind of mumble something incoherent And I try to, like, say something like, look, environment makes culture and culture makes environment. But I have to offer a more comprehensive and concrete argument. And that's what I'm going to try to begin in this episode, although I know that I'm nowhere close. So first, I just want to throw a couple of examples of how environment makes culture. One of the big things that happened over the past 500 years or so was what's called the Little Ice Age. It might surprise you to know, but right now we are actually in an ice age, even though we are really worried about global warming. Um, And ice ages are actually kind of rare in the history of the world. An ice age means that uh, at all points of the year, there are in some places permanent ice. Right now, there's permanent ice on the North and South Poles and on the tops of a bunch of mountains, glaciers and stuff like that. But in 95% of world history, there was not permanent ice packs on the Earth. So right now, we are in an ice age, and environmental historians have gone through the archive of world history and compared it with the archive of the changes in climate, and have made the argument that during times in which there's more uh, uh, heat, when the earth is slightly warmer, then civilizations rise and culture starts to get more complicated. So this is the kind of argument that, for instance, the rise of the Roman Empire and the uh, first uh, uh, Chinese empires are associated with global warming periods in which agriculture was more fruitful and life was easier. You know, in the Roman Empire, for instance, things were warmer than they are now, and people could walk through alpine passes that today are covered in glaciers. Um, similarly, when the climate gets bad, then there's a reduction in global order. Uh, one example of this is in uh, uh, the ancient time period when, because of climactic problems, all of the settled communities of places like Mesopotamia and Egypt were invaded by the sea peoples who were these ravaging you know, barbarians from straight out of nowhere that you know, destroyed uh, statues and civilizations. We can see this process in more recent history through the story of the Little Ice Age. Around the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, things were far colder than they are now. Well, by far colder, I mean a little colder. But it was cold enough that you got certain kinds of new climactic phenomenon. Uh, For example, in Britain, the Thames froze over quite often, leading to what is a little bit fun for me, um, which are ice fairs. You know, when the Thames froze over, people would go out on the ice and set up uh, markets and stalls and games and skating and all this sort of fun stuff. The last time that the Thames froze over was in 1889, so just keep that in mind. But the Little Ice Age is also associated not just with people having fun and, you know, throwing snowballs, but it's also associated with a lot of political instability. In the same time period as the Thames was freezing over more often, you got a series of political crises all around the world. You had the collapse of the Mayan Empire, you had a civil war in Britain, you had civil war in China. And environmental historians sometimes make the argument that these things are correlated. Furthermore, we can see more of this in the culture that rose in this time period as well. I told you a story a couple days ago about how the printing press led to both more discussion and to more, you know, controversy, and that this controversy led to these gigantic wars of religion. And part of the story of the early modern and modern periods were people figuring out ways of talking to each other that wouldn't lead to civil war and disruption. From the perspective of the Little Ice Age, these disputations are more about the natural instability that comes about when things are colder. And so the important thing here is to see how people explain these climactic instabilities. So during the time of the wars of religion, people had what is called a sin economy... Bad things were explained as curses from God. If the crops failed, it wasn't because of, you know, sunspots. It was because of witches. And the way that you solved it was that you looked at the polity and you reformed its manners. You looked at the people who were acting bad and you made them act better. This, for some people, is the reason why you get things like expulsions of the Jews when things get colder and crops fail, and why you get things like witchcraft trials. And witches, you know, are blamed for the same things that happen when the climate is shitty. They're blamed for infertility. They're blamed for crops going bad. They're blamed for people being sad and morose. But then, in the 18th century, this sin economy, this idea of sin is creating stuff moved on to the idea instead of reason. That things happen because of immutable natural laws that we can study if we get rid of tradition and culture, that we can look at if we try hard enough, that we can appreciate if we develop particular aspects of our cognition. And this new kind of reasonable approach to the world saw things like crop failures, not as the result of moral failings that were inflicted on us because of God being angry that people were masturbating or not doing uh, 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 the sacrament in the proper way, but instead, they were identified with mismanagement. People argued that famines happened not because people were bad, but because the government wasn't doing its job properly. The solution then wasn't enforcing forcing people into moral reform. The solution was to reform the government, to reform the state, to reform our ideas about the natural world. Another, you know, perhaps less controversial example is the violent volcanic eruption of mount tambora in 1815 this happened in indonesia and it was one of the biggest volcanic explosions in the history of humankind and it led to severe climactic irregularities uh at first it led to beautiful sunsets which you can see in paintings by people like turner um they were like red and beautiful and really striking But it spread all of these little tiny particles throughout the atmosphere that cooled down the climate by a couple degrees for about two or three years. And this led to series of crop failures and thus to political upset. In Britain, you can see the Tamboran explosion as associated with what I usually talk about as responses to the end of the Napoleonic Wars and capitalism. In 1815, a bunch of people returning from the wars get really, really pissed off, and you get things like the swing riots and machine-breaking and massive political disputations and gigantic processions with workers who are complaining about the political order. For the environmental historian, this might be explained not only as a problem of the development of capitalism, but also the problem of a cooling climate. A suddenly cooling climate when people don't know what to do with themselves. Um, It also led to a decline of light Uh, People called it the year without summer because it was just cold all year, and some people have also argued that this is one of the reasons why you get the birth of new forms of literature that are a little bit more gothic and dour. Um, The big, big, big example of this is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was composed in Switzerland, which was one of the places hardest hit by the Tamborin event. And it was composed when uh, Byron and Shelley and all these people were about to take a really nice trip outside, but they couldn't because the weather was shitty and they were trapped inside all day in a gloomy, you know, uh, 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 apocalyptic climate. Another way that we can look at these things is about how culture can make the environment, to flip that from the environment making culture to the culture making environment. Um, So, one way that this happens is that it changes the way that we look at things. In the rise of the Industrial Revolution, you get all of these new kinds of machines, these new kinds of ways of transporting and making things. And these aren't just, you know, idle, vacant blocks that people put out in the middle of the world people look at them and they appreciate them and they start to find a particular kind of beauty in them this is the beginning of something which is called the technological sublime Um, Before this, people went out into nature and they saw something there, this this feeling that is called by Burke and others, the sublime. This feeling of being impressed by a gigantic natural force that is way beyond our physical powers to ever, you know, uh, uh, conquer or understand, but that is well within our mental powers of understanding. And this gives us this peculiar mixture of fear and awe and in some ways mastery. But in the 19th century, this fear and awe of things like cliffs and storms and mountains is replaced, especially in America, with awe and wonder, at things like dams and bridges, which are the objects of human hands. And this flips the idea of the sublime away from something that shows human limitations to something that shows human possibilities. If you're sitting in front of a bridge and go, whoa, that is sublime, you are not saying, whoa, I don't understand how humans have any power. You are saying the exact opposite. You are saying that the power of humans is greater than mountains, is greater than oceans. And this, maybe, accounts for some of the American culture's view towards the natural environment as something that is the object of countless and constant improvement. Similarly, this podcast has shown a bunch of ways in which things that we might take as cultural or fashionable affect the natural world quite directly. Um, For example, uh, the uh, taste of, of of women and men in the 19th century for corsets meant that people went out and hunted whales because whale bone was really good for making corsets, and this drove down the population of whales. It also allowed for the creation of secondary industries based around the other stuff that whales had, which created the very, very important trade in whale oil which was used as a really, really good way of lighting rooms. Similarly, we can identify, you know, the taste of Brits for tea and coffee as going out and creating actual environmental changes in places like Jamaica and Egypt. Because people in Britain liked the feel of cotton, people in America planted cotton fields that were required to be irrigated by massive canals and these massive canals led to gigantic uh, bits of standing water and the standing water attracted new kinds of mosquitoes and because you had a bunch of people now living in concentrated cities next to standing water so that you could have workers to work in the cotton fields you also had a bunch of people in close proximity to mosquitoes and so you had yellow fever epidemics. But we can identify this weird, you know, cycle of people and water and canal and mosquito and yellow fever as being driven by something cultural, as being caused by the desire of people for nice cotton clothing. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. I will be back tomorrow because I missed Friday. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us with a friend. Send me an email. Especially if you disagree with me or think I have something wrong. It's really, really, really helpful for me to be challenged. Uh, I will see you guys tomorrow.